0: Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another Bugs and Drugs segment for the Step 1 Study Smarter series. I'm Mariah, and today we will be discussing bugs regarding endocrinology. So let's get started. So, our first question is, A 60-year-old male is admitted for a two-day history of nasal discharge and fever. He also complains of some facial pain. The patient has uncontrolled diabetes and was admitted to the hospital for diabetic ketoacidosis a few days ago. He has a fever of 102 degrees and his other vital signs are unremarkable. Nasal examination shows a necrotic left nasal turbinate. There's also some discharge present. Potassium hydroxide stains of the scrapings from the nasal turbinates show hyphae. Which of the following is most likely responsible for this patient's condition? Is it A. Bacteria, B. Fungus, C. Virus, or D. An allergen? This question describes a classic case of something called mucormycosis. Um, this is a rare fungal infection that normally occurs in patients who are immunocompromised um, and especially patients with diabetes. Um, it's caused by inhaling spores that are normally found in uh, soil and vegetation. The two main culprits um, are mucor and rhizopus. Those are the names of the organisms involved. And basically what happens is when a patient is diabetic or immunocompromised, um, this causes the fungus to grow. And it also causes tissue necrosis and a possible spread of the fungus into um, the brain and the palate and other parts of the face. And patients normally present with things like fever, headache, sinusitis. Um, This can also progress to something called pulmonary mucormycosis, where this spreads to the lungs. And um, this can also cause disseminated mucormycosis, where it can spread anywhere else in the body. Normally, we would test this by uh, biopsy. This would show non-septate hyphae. Treatment for this normally includes amphotericin B and um, surgical debridement. Things like controlling the blood glucose and things like that also help in this case. Um, The other options include uh, bacteria, virus, and allergen. And while there are bacteria and viruses that may, that diabetic patients may be more susceptible to, in this particular case, because of the facial pain and the discharge um, from the nose, this is a classic case of a fungal infection, such as mucor mycosis. Um, and this kind of segues into our next question. So, if this was to spread, and let's say that the patient becomes tachypneic um, with increased sinus pain, our next question would be um, what possible structures could be involved in this infection. And a lot of times the cavernous sinus gets involved. And so symptoms that we would see with that, it would cause thrombosis of the cavernous sinus due to the increased spreading infection. And we know that the cavernous sinus houses cranial nerves three, four, Uh, V1, V2, and cranial nerve 6. So patients could lose control of a lot of their ocular muscles and also some of the facial sensation around their eyes and forehead and their maxilla from the V1 and V2. And um, from V6, they would lose more um, ocular muscle function. So that's a possible complication that can occur from this as well. And then we have another question. So, we have a 65 year old male who comes to the ED due to an ulcer on his foot that's progressed over the past few days. The patient has a history of uncontrolled diabetes mellitus and has lost sensation over both of his lower extremities. Aside from an elevated blood pressure of 150 over 88, the patient's vitals are unremarkable. Physical exam shows an ulcer the size of a quarter on the sole of the patient's foot. That's surrounded by necrotic tissue. A bone probe test is positive. Which of the following organisms most likely is responsible for this patient's condition? So if we break this apart, we see that this patient has lost sensation um, in his lower extremities. This is normally one of the complications of diabetes. I call it diabetic polyneuropathy. And this is due to a chronic hyperglycemia. Um, and glycation of the axonal proteins that can eventually cause sensory neural loss. So this normally has a stocking glove pattern, um, sensory loss pattern, and sometimes patients also have burning feet. It can also occur in the upper extremities as well. And normally, um, since this is a neuropathic diabetic foot versus the ischemic diabetic foot, this would present with um, warm, dry skin, um, their foot pulses would be palpable as opposed to ischemic diabetic foot where there is, there is no palpable pulse and the foot is cool and pale. So in this case, because the sensation of their foot is lost, um, a lot of times these patients can have injuries or ulcers that they're not aware of that can progressively get bigger and deeper and eventually cause specific um, infections such as osteomyelitis. And osteomyelitis is an infection of the bone marrow And normally the most common cause of this is the organism staph aureus. And normally patients with diabetes who get these infected foot ulcers can have this um, condition occur due to the infected ulcer. Normally treatment for this includes bed rest, antibiotics, and um, if all else fails, then surgical um, debridement of the, the bone and the tissue. So I realized I didn't, I'm not sure if I read the answer choices, but the answer choices for this question were um, A, strep pyogenes, B, clepsiella, C, staph aureus, or D, rizepis. So while um, strep pyogenes and clepsiella may cause this, they aren't the most common causes. uh, Staph aureus is um, the most common cause of osteomyelitis. And um, rizepis, we already talked about earlier, was responsible for the mucormycosis. So the answer to this question, which is osteomyelitis secondary to diabetic foot, um, is due to staph aureus. Moving on to our next question. A female patient with type 2 diabetes injects insulin. What would happen to glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis? So I'll give you guys a few seconds to think it over and then we'll talk it out. Okay, so glycogenolysis is basically breaking down glycogen to make glucose, and gluconeogenesis is um, creating a glucose. So insulin normally would inhibit these um, actions because it would want to decrease the circulating blood sugar in the body. So both glycogeno- glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis would increase glucose and we know that that's what normally happens. Diabetes, we, we have an increase in uh, blood sugar. So we want to inhibit and counter that. Uh, that's why we give patients insulin. Insulin is a is a major anabolic hormone. It increases lipogenesis in adipose tissue. It increases glycolysis in the muscle and hepatic tissues. It increases protein synthesis in muscle tissues. And it also increases glucose uptake by increasing the GLUT4 Receptor expressions on the surface of adipose and skeletal muscle tissues. This is produced in the beta cells of the pancreatic islets. So normally it starts out as pre-pro insulin in the in the endoplasmic reticulum, and then um, it's turned into pro insulin and um, excreted through secretory vesicles. And we have um, basically C peptide and insulin, which are the end products, and those are released in the blood in equal amounts. So normally, that's a way to test to see if a patient is taking exogenous insulin versus if their body is making endogenous insulin is by testing the levels, uh, by checking the levels of the C-peptide and the insulin. For example, if someone was taking exogenous insulin, they won't have a a proportional increase in their C-peptide because their body did not create that insulin. And they would have a lower amount of C-peptide and a higher amount of insulin Um, As opposed to maybe a tumor that's producing too much insulin, like an insulinoma, that would create um, a high amount of both C-peptide and insulin. So that's a way to know whether or not patients are taking insulin exogenously or if they have a high amount of insulin in their body due to another reason. And this topic, this topic of insulin and diabetes and how it works is very high yield. There's lots of different segues that I could go into about this topic, but it's very, very important to know every every little thing about this. Moving on to our next question. A female patient with a history of psychiatric illness is abusing levothyroxine to lose weight. Given her excess ingestion of T4, what would happen to her levels of T3, T4, TSH, and RT3? So levothyroxine is an analog of T4. So we know that the thyroid, when it's stimulated by TSH, which is stimulated by TRH, produces T4 and T3. It makes a lot more T4 than it does T3. Um, T4 is the pre-hormone and T3 is the actual active and the actual potent hormone. And when T4 goes into the peripheral tissues, it's converted to T3 by 5-prime iodinase. So um, it can also be converted to something called reverse T3, which is RT3, which is inactive. This normally happens in states where the body might be ill and less of the hormone is required. So if a patient is taking levothyroxine, which is basically T4, that's going to negatively feedback and inhibit TRH, which is being secreted from the hypothalamus. Um, And it's also going to decrease TSH, which is being secreted from the anterior pituitary. And because T4 normally turns into, into T3, but because T3 is not needed in this case, T3 will be down, it'll be low, and we'll actually have an increase in reverse T3. So T3 will be down, TSH will be down, T4 obviously, which is levothyroxine, will be up. And reverse T3 will also be up. And while we're on the topic of the thyroid, um, just another high yield thing to point out about the pharmacology. Some drugs that we use in order to help with hyperthyroidism, uh, we have two drugs. We have PTU and methimazole. Those are given to patients who are making too much thyroid hormone. And these drugs work by blocking thyroid peroxidase this inhibits a lot of the thyroid hormone synthesis. And it's important to note that PTU also blocks 5' prime diiodinase in um, the periphery. So that's also decreasing the peripheral conversion of T4 into T3. It's important to note that PTU is used in the first trimester of pregnancy and methimazole is used in the second and third trimesters. Um, they love asking that. It's because PTU causes hepatotoxicity. So we prefer methamazole in the second and third trimester. And um, in the first trimester, methamazole is a teratogen, So we don't like to use methamazole in the first trimester. So PTU is used in the first trimester. Methamazole is used in the second and third trimester of pregnancy. And our last question is, what would happen to the serum levels of calcium and parathyroid hormone and urinary CAMP in a patient taking excess oral vitamin D. We know that vitamin D helps to absorb calcium and phosphate in the small intestine. So normally an excess of vitamin D would cause hypercalcemia and hyperphosphatemia, and a deficiency of vitamin D would result in the opposite. And because now we have the increase in calcium, that's going to cause a decrease in the parathyroid hormone because we know that parathyroid hormone is normally secreted when we have a decrease in calcium. So parathyroid hormone is going to increase calcium, but if we have too much calcium already, this will negatively feed back and cause a decrease in the parathyroid hormone. And parathyroid hormone also acts on the kidneys by increasing the activity of CAMP, So because PTH is now being decreased, there's also going to be a decrease in the CAMP activity in the kidneys. So there you have it. That's our bugs and drugs segment for endocrinology. I hope this helped you guys and best of luck everyone.